Hey folks, Joe Buccino here. You're about to listen to episode 4 of Scentcast. You will now get a new episode of Scentcast every Tuesday morning. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Scentcast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters. Coming to you from Tampa Bay, Florida, with your host, Joe Buccino. I am Joe Buccino. And I'm Joe Crespo. And, you know, Crespo, today we are joined by a guest, so thankful to have Master Sergeant John Zumer. He's an Army Master Sergeant who works in CENTCOM just like you and I do. Yep. Good to be here. Thanks for asking me to come aboard. Well, I know you know about this material, you know about this subject, it's something that's really interesting to you, and, uh, you know, I appreciate you contributing. Well, it's one of those first episodes in my life as I came of age, and just coming out of Vietnam, and you start to follow the news on television, mm. and when the big... War erupted in the Middle East in 1973. Now, certainly, I started to follow that news also. And, you know, we're talking about war in the Middle East. We're talking about an oil crisis in the United States. We're talking about an idea that formed the inception of U.S. Central Command. So, Crespo, why don't, we, why don't you tee it up for us? Okay. So, walking it back to October 6, 1973. This is Yom Kippur, the holiest of Jewish holidays. Egypt and Syria attacked Israeli forces in the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights. And, Master, you know this is a complete surprise. 222 Egyptian jets roared into the sky 2 p.m. local time. Yes, I think the Israelis didn't even think it was possible for um, them to be taken by surprise, but they were certainly caught unawares. Mm -hmm. 3,000 field guns, you know, their targets are, are, they're pounding Israeli command posts and positions on the eastern bank of the Suez Canal and in the Sinai. And this began the October War. This is the fourth of the Arab-Israeli wars. It's certainly the most destructive and intense uh, of all of them. And, and, and the one with the most far-reaching consequences, which we'll get to. And wanting to avoid both an Arab defeat and a military intervention, the Soviets mm. began to resupply Egypt and Syria with weapons. So in other words, this is, this is a proxy war for the Soviets. Now, Mr. we're kind of giving a little bit of a shorthand here because the purposes for us is what happened as a result, not, uh, not the Yom Kippur War. And then three days later, October 9, 1973, following a failed Israeli Defense Force counterattack against the Egypt, Egyptian forces, the Israelis then turned to America and asked them to do the same for them. So not wanting to see Israel defeated, President Nixon agreed to send American planes carrying weapons and weapons began arriving via plane in uh, October 14. This helped significantly to replenish the Israeli forces that had been depleted in the conflict up to that point, from what I understand. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, U.S. intervenes in this in terms of, of resupply, weapons, and money. A big package goes in, and, uh, you know, this puts OPEC, uh, you know, this, this puts OPEC perhaps a little bit on its back leg. OPEC... The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries was a, and still is, an organization of groups, as the name implies, that tries to set favorable oil policies for their own countries. And, and how did they react to this? How did OPEC so, react to this? Two days after airplanes started to arrive, October 16, 1973, OPEC raised the posted price of oil by 70%. Mm. And the next day, oil ministers agreed to cut production. They met in, they met in Kuwait City. And they basically embargoed oil going to the United States and other Western countries, but to the United States for the purposes of what we're talking about. And, you know, this was the most destructive uh, of 
the wars, the Arab-Israeli wars up to that time, there was a lot of weapons going in and out, as you pointed out, uh, you know, Mass Sergeant. But, you know, the most potent weapon of this war was the oil weapon. It, it had, uh, you know, far-reaching consequences. And this is the first time we thought of oil as a weapon. You know, Henry Kissinger said that the oil embargo altered irrevocably the world as it had grown up in the post-war period. And, and, and I read about this. The result was a crisis that left drivers... And governments looking for not only gas but other ideas to make supply last as long as possible. You remember some of this when you were when you were little? I do. Certainly, my own parents joining the long lines at the neighborhood gas station wasn't pleasant then or now to even think about. And uh, you know, the, the Nixon administration uh, really had to react to this. It was a little bit uh, flat-footed. This was a real shock. It was a complete surprise. And, uh, you know, by, by this time, by 1973, oil had become the lifeblood of the world's industrial economies, and it, it was critical to the United States. We'd become so reliant on oil from that part of the world, and it was being pumped and circulated with very little to spare. So, you know, the supply and demand equation is very tight. Now you're cutting off the supply, and what impact does this have? So here at home, here at the federal home. government instituted a temporary price cap. On a gallon of gas, uh, I read that oil companies and gas stations were unable to turn a profit due to the price cap, and they scaled back on operating costs, which resulted then in stations spending fewer hours being open, uh, shorter business hours, long lines of the drivers, like you said, and, and some of those uh, events over the weekends even even cancel or postpone to try and save energy. Mm. And, uh, you know, here's audio uh, from... Uh, Richard Nixon, this is November 7th, 1973. This is address, his address, his public address to the United States from the White House, describing the, the measures he's putting in place to try to preserve the little oil we had for as long as possible. I am tonight announcing the following steps. First, I am directing that industries and utilities which use coal, which is our most abundant resource, be prevented from converting from coal to oil. Efforts will also be made to convert power plants from the use of coal or oil to the use of coal. Second, we are allocating reduced quantities of fuel for aircraft. Now, this is going to lead to a cutback of more than 10% of the number of flights and some rescheduling of arrival and departure times. Third, there will be reductions of approximately 15% in the supply of heating oil for homes and offices and other establishments to be sure that there is enough oil to go around for the entire winter all over the country it will be essential for all of us to live and work in lower temperatures we must ask everyone to lower the thermostat in your home by at least six degrees so that we can achieve a national daytime average of 68 degrees incidentally my doctor tells me that in a temperature of 66 to 68 degrees, you're really more healthy than when it's 75 to 78, if that's any country. You are listening to CENTCAST, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters from Tampa, Florida. The Egyptian attack on Israeli command posts was a complete surprise. The embargo was, was just as much of a 
complete surprise. It was, uh, you know, these are two stunning events that, that happened uh, within close proximity to one another. And, you know, the full impact of this embargo include high inflation, stagnation in oil importers. It re resulted really from a complex set of factors beyond the proximate actions that we're talking about. So th there's a lot that happened within the oil market that, you know, made it a very tight market. Uh, you know, all this described in Daniel Jurgen's book, The Prize, 1991 book. For the purposes of this, what we're talking about, the Nixon administration began thinking about, strategically, about the Middle East and, and thinking about a command in the Middle East. Nixon directs his Secretary of Defense, James Schlesinger, in, uh, towards the end of 1973, it was either October or November 1973, to begin thinking about a U.S. military command focused solely on the Middle East. Now, of course, Nixon at the time was already embroiled in the, in the Watergate scandal. He's out of August. He resigns the next August, August 9th, 1974. So, so this idea, they were overwhelmed with under siege with Watergate. He, then, he, then Nixon's gone. And the, the momentum to build a command, a military command focused in the Middle East is also gone. It's later picked up, of course, by the Reagan administration, as we described in episode two. You talked about the Nixon administration being heavily involved in negotiating some sort of resolution to this, partly in response to the developments both home and abroad. On November 7th, the Nixon administration announced Project Independence, mm. which was an idea to promote domestic energy independence. And it also engaged in extensive diplomatic efforts, not military, diplomatic efforts with allies to promote consumers' unions that, that would probably provide strategic depth and, um, and, a, and some sort of cartel to control oil pricing. Both of these were only partly successful mm. from the economic and the diplomatic standpoint. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things about Project Independence, a lot of people don't realize, because the U.S., since they came out of World War II in 1945, there was a long period where oil was not only abundant, but quite cheap on the world stage. Right. So even when U.S. producers had to expand rapidly. They didn't have a lot of the infrastructure and other things in place to do so. And so that wasn't exactly the quick fix, perhaps, that people had hoped for. And, you know, it's interesting because, uh, to your point, Master Sergeant Zumer, is that prior to this, um, you know, the things that had happened in the Middle East generally were contained within the Middle East. And now we're seeing that uh, with, with reliance on energy, and then we, see, we would see later in uh, the Iran-Iraq war with, uh, you know, violence and instability that that extends outside of the Middle East. It extends to the, to the United States, extends to the West. We say here in CENTCOM right now that what happens in the Middle East does not stay in the Middle East. You know, the, the, the Middle East matters. It's central to the world's energy. Not that we're trying to use it, the energy there, but, but we're, it's, it's central to stability and security on a global stage. For sure. Europe, for example, mm -hmm. right? Just the, the area nearest to the Middle East. They had to deal with the embargo and, and it dealt a deadly blow to their economy, which was almost fatal for the European integration at the time because they were so totally dependent on foreign oil. The doubling and tripling sometimes of oil prices in Europe alone was a disaster that had been very smooth and rapid growth throughout Western Europe and particularly throughout other countries in Eastern Europe. I know that Researchers say that Europe lost confidence in its ability to manage its own affairs mm. from this crisis, wow. from which they don't think they, they have recovered still. 
Hey folks, more audio from news footage from 1973 of the oil crisis. Yeah, we called our oil, uh, regular oil dealer and he had none. And Shell Oil is a pretty big outfit. And uh, they suggested we call the Red Cross. And I called the Red Cross and if they can't help you, who can? How well are you able to cope with the problem? Right now I'm not able to cope with it. I was up until probably this, the beginning of this week. But uh, now the oil companies are turning us down. And, I, and still I know that people are, are without heat and they're cold. And most of the cases that we get do have small children in. You know, it's interesting, this was a, it came and went fairly quickly. So, so you mentioned October 6, 1973, the, the war starts, the embargo takes place a few days later. Then by November, parts of the United States are basically at a standstill. So most gas stations are not selling gas on the weekends. Some state governments asked their citizens to refrain from putting up Christmas lights mm. over the holidays to save energy. And th there's images, you can find these in the National Archives, there's images of long lines of cars just waiting to get the limited, like a mile long, literally a mile long, waiting to get the limited gas they can. There's another image, I I'm not sure where this is from, I believe it's New Jersey, of residents in line holding lawnmowers, like 30 residents holding lawnmowers because they had to get gas for their lawn, they had to get gas for the lawnmowers so they can cut their gas, they can cut their, their lawn. So this is going into, um, you know, the holiday season to the end of 1973, and then January 1974, there's a break, a little bit of a break uh, for the United States in the oil crisis. National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, he meets with King Faisal of Saudi Arabia and pers persuades him that the conditions for the embargo had ended with the end of the Yom Kippur War. The oil crisis is now touted as a, a grand diplomatic success for Kissinger. And his point was, aside from the aid package, we've been very even-handed with both parties to this war. So, you know, that's the, the case he's making. Um, he continues to make it uh, throughout January 1974. And then on February 22nd, 1974, King Faisal, he chairs a summit of the Islamic states in Pakistan, in Islamabad, Pakistan. And, you know, he's, he's acclaimed as a conquering hero. He, he humbled the West by wrecking its economy. So certainly his stock rises in, in that part of the world. So he certainly gets something out of this. March 19th, 1974, the embargo finally ends. Um, as OPEC determines or, or says publicly, the United States was now being more even-handed, using Kissinger's own term. The United States now promised to sell Saudi Arabia weapons that had previously denied under the grounds that they might be used against Israel. So, look, this was, Messer, this was maybe a battle of wills here. It's almost like a contest. Who's going to blink first? OPEC won? I don't know if you could go so far to say that there were any winners in this conflict. Yeah. Because you look at things from the standpoint of, are we better off economically, politically, or even strategically? Look at it from the standpoint of the countries in the Middle East. There was no return to the 1949 borders of Israel. Perhaps you drove even deeper into the camps of Israel, those Western allies that you had been targeting mm -hmm. with your punitive measures. And certainly from the standpoint of the American and Western consumers, if there had not been a wake-up call up to that point as far as practical, complete dependence upon Middle Eastern oil, this certainly sent the alarm bells ringing. No, for sure. 
two points that I wanted to share with you as well is that this embargo laid bare, right? That critical foremost challenge confronting U.S. policymakers mm -hmm. that in the Middle East, you have to balance contradictory demands of unflinching support to Israel and the preservation of close ties to the Arab oil producing monarchies at the time. And then since then, think about all of these reforms that have, were born out of this crisis. So creating an, a strategic petroleum reserve, right? A national 50 mile per hour speed limit on a lot of highways. And even the inclusion of President Ford, fast forwarding his administration, uh, imposed fuel economy standards and it prompted the creation of the IEA, the International Energy Agency. And we should say that the uh, speed limit, what was it, 50, 50 miles 55 an hour? Mile 55 miles per hour. hour. The idea being, obviously, if you, you drive slower, you burn less gas. Mm -hmm. So at the time, in the, in, the, in, in the heart of the crisis, the thicket of this crisis, some states mandated a 50 mile an hour speed limit. And, you know, after this, uh, many countries realized they had to start producing, their, they needed to start producing their own oil. And, you know, OPEC lost its, pretty, its preeminent position pretty quickly. Um, as production was surpassed by that of, of other countries. So, you know, maybe it's not for us to, to kind of mine this for, for a adjudication or, or opinion, other than to say that the 1973 oil crisis forced America's national security apparatus to, to think deeply about the Middle East, to focus on the Middle East, and then um, to consider uh, a command, a unified command that was focused on this region security and stability thereof. Right, anchoring the military instrument national power to support diplomatic, informational, and of course, e economic interests of the and, United States. And really, you know, to build the kind of strong partnerships we'd need to, to hinge on which that, that stability and security will hinge. I would just like to ask people to remember that just because the oil embargo was lifted, it doesn't necessarily mean the economic pain Americans suffered for much of the remainder of the 1970s automatically vanished as well. It was just one of many factors that consisted of the economic problems America suffered for much of the remainder of the 1970s. Fuel supply issues amid international tensions are not new. You know, we've had a history of rocking the global economy just as it does today even. So though not exactly the same dynamics with Russia-Ukraine war, the current increase in gas prices does hold some similarities to the 1973 oil crisis. It does, and I think, uh, you, know, you know, for our purposes, uh, it's important to understand that um, the tie from energy from the region is a global tie. And, and you know, CENTCOM, it is central to uh, stability across the, the world. It's central to security across the world. It's central to economic stability. And, you know, beyond that, of course, we've all spent time uh, in the region. It's such a rich culture and heritage, and there's so much uh, there in terms of, a, you know, history, lineage, a warrior culture. And so, you know, the Middle East matters. That's a, a key takeaway for me in, in reading about the story. Certainly no arguments here. You think about it, this, this literally laid the groundwork for where we're at today and what type of structure, both uh, political, diplomatic, and military was needed to maximize our presence in the area. All right, well, I think a shorter one today. I think we've covered this story mm -hmm. to the extent that uh, we should. All right, Master Sergeant Zoomer, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Dan, for having me. Thanks for having me again, Joe.